Welcome back to the Fathers of the Future podcast. I'm going to let my man do the intro because he's got a big voice. He can talk, but not just speak. It's the power that he brings with the words that he chooses and ultimately his purpose, his existence on planet Earth, my brother. Yes. How you doing, Luke? Who are you and why are you here? Man, uh, my name is Alan Munnerlin. Um, why I'm here, I think that that has been an amazing question. Uh, it's too complicated to give it in one answer, but I'm here to help others uh, give back to people, uh, share with them my story. Um, I'm, I'm very blessed to be here. I was given uh, three weeks recently in May of 2015, May 13th to be exact, uh, diagnosed with biphenotypic acute leukemia, which is ALL and AML at the same time. It's, it's extremely rare to have one, let alone both of the leukemias running through your body. Guaranteed, this will be the hardest fucking day of your life. This week's podcast episode is brought to you by The Crucible. Weak men suck and how not to suck. Scottsdale, Arizona, March 20th, April 24th, May 29th. The Crucible is a groundbreaking and revolutionary intensive training program designed for men to learn, live, and lead their family into the unknown future with certainty, confidence, and power. The mission is simple, not easy to expand, grow, and impact the hearts, minds, health, and spirit of the men who show up relentlessly, love unconditionally, and never give up on the endless game of self-mastery. Why? Because most men have never been educated or informed on how to achieve greatness in every area of their life, let alone lead and influence others on how to live their own extraordinary one. Apply now to see if you have what it takes to expand and grow in the arena of life and create an unfucking recognizable version of the man that stands today. Um, I had a bone marrow transplant uh, later in 2015, and uh, essentially I was given three weeks. The doctor came in and said, you have three weeks to a month to live, get your stuff together. Uh, you, are, you will most likely die. Um, <laughs> I was 30. I was 32 at the time. I'm 36 now. I'm about to be 37. Uh, and uh, we have three daughters. I'm married. I've been married since I was 21, but been together since I was 17 with my wife. So, so, so hold on. Go back to. Yeah, you're going to, to die soon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And if I can, but just put this into perspective. <laughs> which it must be extremely hard uh, for you to do, let alone somebody who's never gone through that. Yeah. But, and I say but, and I hate that word, and I hate it when my son uses it. However, it's just as bad, it's just cheesier. When you live like you're dying, mm -hmm. there's a certain joy that life brings you. And prior to that, you were not living like you were dying. And then you were told in an instant that you're probably going to die. Married, yes. two kids, three at the kids time, at the two time, kids. two kids. Actually, no, we had just had our third one. Our third was born May 14th, 2014. So the day before her first birthday, I 
finally got the news of what had been going on for six months previous. I was sick for six months previous and um, I had night sweats. I had anemia everywhere. Uh, I had torn tendons and going into work in tears. I didn't know what was wrong with me. Felt like I was dying. Obviously now I know I was. And um, when you get that, that message, my entire life had flashed in front of my eyes. I really wasn't even paying attention to the oncologist telling me, you're probably going to die. You have double leukemia and you need a lot of help. You have greater than 60% blast cells in your body, which would essentially be stage four in the terms of leukemia. Alan, how did you find out? You said you were sick, but yeah. you know, there's a few people I know right now that are going through some health issues and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the precursing signs. You know, I, I presented as very normal to the doctors, except for night sweats. I was soaking the mattress. I would have to sleep on two or three blankets and I was soaked up to my head. And I would, the funny thing is I thought I was wetting myself at bed, at bedtime. I go, how am I having this, this pee all over my head? <laughs> There's no way I'm peeing on my face at night. And then I started to get anemia, which is little red spots everywhere, and just feeling fatigued, losing weight by the, you know, 10 pounds, 15 pounds, 20 pounds, and I was smashing food. I was so hungry. I was just eating. Do you, also, do you remember what weight you got down to? I got down to 160 on a frame of six foot, which I am. It doesn't look good. <laughs> it does not look good. Um, I look like a skeleton. And I felt that way. I felt like death was was just around the corner. And the doctors, I would go in and they'd say, nothing's wrong. Nothing is wrong with you. I don't know why you're here. You're just sick. You're just sick. It's a virus. It's a virus. For six months, I would go back and forth to Cleveland Clinic. Um, we lived in Cleveland at the time. And I would have doctors look at me and I, they'd stay over and make all the staff upset because they'd spend two hours with me trying to figure it out. Finally, uh, in May, actually May, May 11th, 2015, I had a doctor finally take some extra time with me and go, you know what? It sounds weird, but it sounds like possible leukemia. I'm going to do a bone marrow biopsy, come into the office and mm. we'll take care of that. And um, so I did it. And he said, we'll call you in three weeks. The results take three weeks. He called me on uh, May May 13th, two days later, and said, you need to get your butt in. You got, you got leukemia, bud. And uh, sure enough, we started the process. So so, so stop for a moment, yeah. right? Because yeah. we, we, we can obviously just keep moving. Yeah. But your life didn't keep moving for a while. It, it, it stopped. It did. So just walk us through this process as, you know, men husbands, fathers, we're doing everything we possibly can to live the best life that we possibly can. And we can control what we can control. You could not control this. This just happened to you. Right. I think the onset was absolute shock, uh, laughter. This is, I thought I was being punked. I thought it was a joke, but also instant regret, instant regret for all my entire, my entire, you know, twenties through thirties, man, were wake up. I was just blind, always trying to get to the next, the next event. You know, life's rough. It throws out 
so many things and you're just trying to get to the next event, just trying to survive. Um, when you're told that you're not going back to work, you're going to a hospital bed for however long it takes. And if you don't come out, well, this is your, your, your home until you die. You get instant regret. I think that most people should have regret. And oh my God, what have I done? What have I done to contribute to, to the world, to humanity, to my family, to my family? And what did you regret most going into that? You know, I, I grew up in a uh, strict religious cult and was in it from one to 17 years old, from the time I was one to the time I was 17. And uh, all the choices that I made from, you know, one to 17, good, bad, indifferent, um, you know, there, there's there's an, there's 17 stories, years of stories there. <laughs> That's a whole nother ball game. Cult, I call it cult shit. Yeah, we're, we're gonna come back yeah, to that because yeah. you, um, you do have some. Uh... But it's that it's all of those events plus being married young, married in 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 a relationship young, my entire twenties, and um, into my thirties, uh, the decisions I've made with my children that, quite frankly, were terrible. Uh, you know, there's no manual with these children. They, they, I, I forget which guest it was. I think it might have been um, Ryan you had on here. And uh, Mr. Ryan said something like, okay, they give you a child. Is anybody going to come back here and help me? No, no, no directions included. <laughs> no directions. Here's your child. You spent three or four days with the nurse who's coming in and out of the room. And, you know, you've relied heavily on them. And, and hey. Have fun. You're kicked loose now, you know, and those decisions that you make that are just God awful because you're a young parent. Um, the absolute disrespect that I threw my wife from, you know, 18 until I was diagnosed at 32. Um, God, my wife, uh, I am shocked that I'm still married today, but all of those play in when you're told, you now have cancer. What are you going to do? Are you going to treat it? That's the only thing you can do. Or are you going to walk out of this hospital? Nothing else matters. Leukemia and getting better. That's what matters. And hey, by the way, you have three weeks to a month. No joke. He said you have three weeks to a month to live. You're probably going to die. It's, it's a very hard disease to kick. Um, How have you continued to not only survive, we'll talk about that in a few, but... Yeah stay positive and, and, and laugh at it. You know, I chose at that moment to laugh about it. You know, the doctor came in and when he said that, he goes, we're going to start with arsenic. <laughs> we're going to start with arsenic. Knowing how expensive leukemia treatment can be and a bone marrow transplant, which I needed, he told me, I'm thinking, this is going to get pretty pricey. I instantly made a joke right off the rip. I told myself, you are going to do this with humor. You're going to do it standing up. You're not going to cry. You're not going to feel sorry for yourself. You have a chance to survive. It's slim, but you have a chance. You're here now. It's caught. The hard part is over. You know what's wrong with you now. Now pony up, throw your balls over your shoulder and get it. So I made a joke. I said, you know what? We can save all of the, uh, chemotherapy bills. I'll just go to Home Depot and pick up rat poison. Because <laughs> if we're starting with arsenic, I'll just start dropping, you know, Ridex. And the doctor cracked up. And that was how I decided 
to start my treatment? Laughter. You know, are you going to cry about it or are you going to show up? You know, that is one of the things that I love about you is that through a weird way, I was living this parallel, after cancer anyways, after cancer, this parallel life to you in a way, show up and not knowing you and not knowing what you were about and just, you know, doing my job day in and day out with knowing you in that way. Um, it was very inspiring to see that I was close. I was close. I needed to hone it in more and, and to be given, you know, tips by a man who is, who knows and, and is secure in himself. And again, that goes back into my childhood, you know, growing up with cult shit. So that's two. We're going to no. get through chemo before we get to cold shit. But uh, one more mention of cold shit and we'll have to just drop whatever we're talking about yeah. to talk about that. How'd you get out of it? What is that timeline like? And ultimately, how are you walking around on Earth right now? Um, for all accounts and purposes, I should be a mess. Um, one to 17 I grew up in a strict religious cult, uh, very similar to David Koresh and the, the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, back in the day, if anybody remembers that. Where, where now was I'm it? Now I'm aging myself. Where, where, where uh, was it? it was in California. And this cult was in California and ran about the same time as, as the whole Waco, Texas. In fact, I we were at the compound when we were watching that on TV, when Janet Reno sent the tanks in and stormed that. There were some differences, uh, no gunplay. Uh, in our cult, but cult stuff nonetheless, nonetheless. And, um, you know, that's one to 17 years old. That's it. My mom and my dad divorced when I was one because my dad said, I'm not getting involved in this. And my mom took myself and my sister and, and went head in, head first into this group. Um, that's complicated. There's 17 years of stories there and a hierarchy and other families that I still talk to to this day and a lot of other children who went through that and uh, some crazy stories. Um, so I'm sure most people would ask, well, how'd you get out of it? Or how'd yeah. you, right? I'm not going to ask that. So I want to ask yeah. you something that maybe no one's asked you about that, but what did you learn in a positive way? Yeah. In a positive way. From being in a cult. There is positivity in everything. Just like I decided to laugh about the first diagnosis and arsenic going to Home Depot and picking up rat poison. I chose for 17 years to listen to the message of the Bible. You know, we read from the Bible and um, there is a message in there and pick from it what you will. Yes, it was terrifying. I learned a lot of about the fear of God <laughs> and, um, you know, sin and walking around being in the world and, um, you know, the repercussions of sin. But I also chose to take manners, serving other people. Uh, my role growing up in that group was to serve others. There was a lot of families and there was a lot of mouths to feed during Bible study. And, you know, I did it with a smile. It, did I like serving people their dinners and their, bringing them their salt pe and pepper shakers? No. Um, you felt like a slave. You really did. But I chose to pick all of the good from that and dwell on it. You know, it, that was me growing up. I was happy no matter what. I always had a smile and I still have a smile on my face 
to this day because it does help with things that you think are being thrown at you on purpose. Um, that's just the human flaw. We think everything is intentional. It's not. Yeah, I just heard this statistic yesterday that you will have a 30% increase in performance when you have a positive outlook. Absolutely. 30%. That's insane. Yeah. 30%. 30%. That, that is life-changing. Yeah. That's almost half of your time spent in the dumps or being positive. Mm. So yeah, the positivity is what gets you through those things. And a lot of, it's cliche. People say it all the time. Be positive, be positive. It really does affect your mind and your mood. It's so simple. It's so simple. It's so simple. But it, you know, it's this weird secret that it takes people to remove the veil from that and other positive people. I didn't have positivity growing up. You know, it was figure out your own life survive the message of your sin you're sinning this week you're gonna die <laughs> you know god's gonna kill you you're you're terrible i only ever knew the hateful god and you've had some guests on here who have mentioned you know their relationship with god and um i'm very in between and i'm very in between because of the events that we'll probably get into here soon and mm. the loss of people around me and um so let's get out of the yeah. cult yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah. we got out of chemo let's get out yeah. of the cult now Sorry, man. So <laughs> <laughs> no this is beautiful how'd you get out of the cult my mom and my sister started dating outside of the cult which is a huge taboo you do not date outside of the group but my sister got into involved with her first almost husband at that time and my mother started dating somebody from work kaiser she worked at Kaiser Permanente her entire life. And um, this gentleman, who is my stepfather now, um, he studied cults in his service. He, he was in the service and he studied cults. So he was able to tell my mother, hey, you're in a cult and I'm going to take you out of it. So he had started working on pulling her out and my sister as well. And I was the youngest of the group and still very set in my religious ways. You know, I'm not going to be evil in the world. So they left before I did. They moved me out of my parents, my mother's house and into the compound. And I stayed there for about two months and went to school next to the compound. And my mom literally just said, okay, you can have him. She let the group take me from her after she left and my sister left. So I spent two months in there. I finally got tired of missing them. I actually missed my mom and my sister. So I started talking back. How old were you at the time? 17, 17. I started talking back to all of the upper echelon people, which you did not do. You did not talk back to the leader and you know the subsequent leaders because you you were a hole in the wall. You know, I grew up with spatulas and belts and hangers. Which ironically kept me from not having a father, you know. I did not have a father one through 17, and that kept me, you know. I, I learned discipline. And um, so I just finally got tired of missing them and talked back to them, and they pulled me out of the pool. I was swimming. I remember this. We were swimming in the backyard. They pulled me out, got all my stuff in the car, and dumped me on my mom's front porch. And I was 17. And I had to change schools again. But... Uh, that was the first time that I had seen any of my family, who ironically lives here in, an, in and around Arizona, Prescott, and all over Chandler. And that was the first time I had ever seen my mom's family and any family members, because we were not allowed to see family either. 
And um, yeah, that's how I got out. I just started talking back, mm. talking back. Yeah. Being bad. R- radical candor, <laughs> st- standing up for what you believed in. Yes, yeah. it was sketch, but I did. I did. So in between mm-hmm. the cult and cancer. Yeah. I, what's your life look like and, and how soon you, you got married young? Yeah, very young. I Tell us about the timeline of not only how you became a father, but was your stepfather an active part in your life after he got you guys out of the cult? No. So the first couple days that I had gotten removed from the cult or whatever you'd like to say, I had gotten into it with this man who was going to be my future stepfather. Um, he was a real man. He was a man. And I had never been around the presence of a real man who was involved romantically with my mother. You know, it was a father figure for the first time. We had issues. I was 17. I thought I knew it all. I was also struggling with a lot of depression from the group because I thought God was going to kill me if I walk under a bridge because I left the group and I'm unrighteous and I'm sinning now. And we got into it. I remember an incident in the car where he literally said, you know what, drop him off at his father's. So first two days out of the cult, in the first week, he literally drops, he gets my mom to drop me off at my father's doorstep now. And I had never met my father aside from one, a brief blip in a Toys R Us parking lot while I was opening micro machines. You remember micro machines? Yeah. And this guy pokes you, his you head. You definitely just aged yourself. Too. Yes, I did. Yeah. Micro machines were my thing and Ghostbuster figures. So my, this man pokes his head into the window as I'm opening these toys and says, I'm your father. I must have been nine or 10 at that time. That was the only other time that I had met him. So fast forward to 17, getting out of the cult and this new father figure in my life who's telling me, you're an asshole. <laughs> you have issues and you need to work on some things. You might have a story, but you don't know it all. And we got in this massive fight. He dumps me in front of my dad's and there I am about to live with my dad for the first time ever. And my dad and I got into some problems. And my dad was a raging alcoholic raging alcoholic. Um, and I just never had been around that. No drugs or alcohol growing up. And that was foreign to me. So then I ran away. I ran away probably two weeks later after moving in with my father. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't have any role models from my life be a male because they were, yes, my dad has had issues, but they also were holding me accountable. And I never really had to do that. I was able to hide in between the the cult stuff. And so I ended up uh, moving out into the street, uh, on t- into the park, Hollyfield Park. And um, yeah, I was living in a park for about two weeks on a bench. And this staff sergeant with the Marines would run every morning, saw me living there and said, hey, you can't live in the park, you're a minor. You know, what's going on? So he took me under his wing. I took my ASVAP. I was going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, I was going to go to the Marines. Um, I took my ASVAP and I think I got a 60 or something off the street, which is not very good. But if I had studied, I could have gone on. In the meantime, I got put into a group home. So everything is so fast. You get out of a group from 1 to 17. You, you leave your mom's house. You get thrust in with your father who you never met before. You have problems with your father. And now you're in a group home three weeks later and you're, uh, you're going to court. 
because my mom had to give up custody of me to stay in the group home until I was 18. So it was a whirlwind of emotions and anger, just anger all the time, angry. I had lost my happiness shortly after, and I didn't know how to find it. And um, Because nobody was there. There was no, no one. No one was there to teach you. No one was there to guide you. Yeah. And, oh. and how did you not revolt? So for me, mm-hmm. my, my story is very similar, um, not with the group homes or with the cult, but for the fact that I was very lost uh, as a youth, troubled youth, if you will. Yeah. And I didn't have a positive male role model. This message, this movement, this fucking podcast Mm -hmm. is because I grew up without a father and there was a massive void in my life so that when I grew up and became a man, a real man, I realized that there's a lot of people still living like that. Both youth, kids like me, like you, and adults who now have kids. So this entire game was born out of a missing void for me. And we're going to get into your message here soon. But how did you not go hard left? You know, um, I don't know. Through the grace of God, I don't know. If there is a God out there, I again, I'm struggling with it right now. Um, but I'd like to believe there is some higher power holding all this together and who has kept me through all of this, not turning into a drug addict or a baby or an alcoholic, you know, going to work every day and and (laughs) being successful. I don't know, just laughter, humor, and absolute thankfulness that I'm here right now. Did you have a chip on your shoulder? I did. I I thought everything was personal, especially if it came from a male. If it came from another male who had a shit together, I thought it was personal. And I think that um, many people have mentioned your the book that you give to people, <laughs> The Way of the Superior Man. But it's so true. Having another male hold you accountable mm. is so powerful. I didn't have that. And I think that that was my downfall early on, you know. And then, okay, so you're essentially a baby. You're a baby getting out of that group, going through all the trials and tribulations early on, a group home your mom giving up custody of you, a fight that leads you to juvenile hall, which I haven't told you about, a fight in the group home that led me to juvenile hall for nine months. Okay, this is the accelerated version of the worst case scenario. I'm talking within months. I'm in juvenile hall within months of leaving the cult. What the hell is going on? I broke this kid's jaw, stole my radio, long story short, but you can't fight in a group home. The the judge is now your father. So I get sent to fire camp in California, fighting fires in juvenile hall from 17 to right up until September 11, 2011. I saw that go down in juvenile hall. Wow. And we were watching the planes fly into the buildings while we were in juvenile hall. We didn't know what to think. Like the world is collapsing outside. But anyhow, uh, that was nine months of being locked up for assault with bodily injury because I broke his jaw when I hit him once. It was just the perfect hit. And um, so here I am, nine months in juvenile hall, looking around with really bad gangsters and kids. And here's this little white kid just trying to make his way through juvenile hall now. 
who's also so unsure of himself and now has now has multiple males telling you what to do mm. multiple very strong figures telling you what to do i can't even describe that it was like my brain was just bashing into each other every time i got a little bit ahead and positivity you're just down in the dumps again so fast forward i get my ged in in juvenile hall which actually helps me to get released because i got emancipated i ended up putting in for early release and said look i i, I messed up and let me out judge lets me out meeting my best friend in there Derek francis um he had called me two or three days after i got out and i was still 17 and a half he's like i have a girlfriend that i want to go back out with can you go with me and I said, oh, I don't know, I don't know, but I'll, okay, I'll go with you, Derek. I know you need a wingman. His ex-girlfriend brings her wingman, who is now my wife, Shelly. And the movie was Vanilla Sky, terrible movie. I remember the movie, but uh, we just talked and talked and talked. And this girl was the first person that showed me some sort of interest. And, you know, we're just gelling, we're, we're jiving and, you know, um, I tell her my story and she's, she's like, you know, I, I'm not really living at home with my mom either. She kind of moved out and left me an apartment and I'm living in the apartment. Why don't you move in with me? So, okay. This you, is, this is, this the is first 17 day. and a half, Luke. I am moving in with a female at 17 and a half. And now I'm making a life. I got to find a job. Um, I, I can't explain. I can't describe the feelings of being 17 in a relationship, that whole ball of mess before you. Mm. And now you're in love. I mean, I had had girlfriends in high school and that's fine. But Shelly, she was just so focused on fixing me, I think. I think she saw a, <laughs> a lost cause, you know, to this day we talk about it. She was just all about fixing me. And I needed that. I needed that care from somebody. So I started a relationship with her and um, I'm still with her to this day. Hmm. I'm still with her to this day. I had kids so early. Yeah, tell us about the kid yeah, timeline. Yeah, the kids. Um, my daughters, uh, our daughters, uh, God, 21, I had our first daughter, Haley. And I have a 15-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 5-year-old, all girls. Girl dad in the house. Yes. Uh, it is brutal. It's legalized terrorism. It is. And the first day that I had seen my daughter absolutely changed my life. I Holding Haley, it was no longer about myself. You know, it was... It was like, holy crap, I got a human life. First off, somebody needs to take this human life from me. <laughs> this is not, I'm not qualified for this. But, you know, you got to figure it out. You got to figure it out. These kids don't have an option when they're born into this world. They didn't ask for it. She changed my life. But I was still so messed up, still so messed up. And, um, you know, so I went right into fatherhood, essentially. And and we got married. Um 20 and 21, I got married in Vegas. We did the Vegas thing. My wife was pregnant uh, during our marriage. She's not even 21, so she couldn't even walk on the casino floor. But uh, it was a shotgun wedding. Uh, 
I had her mother there, my mother-in-law, who's still around and very important to me. And her mother's boyfriend, who I had known for my entire relationship to, who recently passed in 2016 as well. But he was like a real, my first father figure, and he was my best man. And so it was so, it's just so inspiring to have a child. And now you have a life and you have something, you have a purpose and you have to figure your life out. And your life really doesn't matter anymore. This child's life matters. So yeah, it was, it's a lot. There's just a lot fast. And I think that throughout everything and why I really wanted to come on this podcast is to share with others the story of feeling like life is so unfair and you know it's personal it's personal they're coming after you it's not it's just life living itself out and you can take that approach where you can be negative and you can blame everybody else but your own actions which i did for a long time and i still have problems with that but you know um essentially that's why i wanted to come on here and yeah. just explain to you yeah. everybody who's listening if there's one person out there listening yeah who's an average joe who is sitting there blaming everybody else but himself and his own actions for the life he's living and i can get through to that person and he can hear this podcast and my life is complete yeah <laughs> life is complete yeah that's beautiful we're going to take this next moment to introduce what we call shameless self-promotion. And this is an opportunity for you to share with the listeners what your new business plan is. And it's very intriguing. It's very exciting. So if you're listening to this uh, in the early stage funding here, seed funding, my man Alan is, is looking for friends and family investors here. And I would love for you to share this sure. idea with the listeners. You know, um, throughout all of our trials and tribulations uh, that have come onto the family, the one thing that has always been hard for us is finances. Every penny is earmarked for finances, um, which you know makes it hard to be positive about things in life. But you get through. You get through with the positivity. Um, we decided that how can we give back? Okay, I had double leukemia and a bone marrow transplant where some stranger saved my life, donated bone marrow to save my life. How can we give back? So we want to hide money in and around Phoenix. It's going to be an outdoor adventure room, essentially, where there are going to be clues written into historic places in Phoenix or at the Children's Museum. You're going to have to go someplace to get a clue, to get a clue, to get a clue. And at the end, you will have a chance to win some pretty life-changing prizes and all for an amazing price of $9.99. You can take out the kids for $9.99. And the website is already it's, up and running? Yeah, it's called moneyhunts.com. Moneyhunts.com. We're up and running right now. We're just building the subscriber list. We realize how important it is to... Uh, capture emails and we are just going to give back where it counts most in people's wallets, you know, because that is what I relate to. How are you going to get the next bill? We want to give back that way. And Alan, let's just take it a step further here. The, the listeners are quite unique. Uh, I probably have 99% of them on my cell phone mm -hmm. as they are people, friends, and family that, that I've known for some time. And there are some new listeners like yourself, but if there's somebody out there listening to 
your intent on launching this business yeah. and they wanted to donate, forget invest, let's call it donate, right? A thousand, two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand dollars. That would do what? Ten thousand dollars right now for this business would do what for you? That's big. That's big for a family of five. Um, ten thousand dollars would allow us to do videography, which we so desperately need. The biggest challenge with moneyhunts.com is going to be proving that the prizes are real. You have to educate people that it's a real deal. It's not a gimmick. This amazing adventure game that is modeled after National Treasure or Goonies or Indiana Jones, which is all the love of our movies. Um, you have to prove that it's real and that there are, you know, potentially $5,000 clues hiding out there. $10,000 for us would allow us to revamp the website, get videography involved, marketing, um, and, and education, essentially. That's really what you're doing. We, we really only need $2,000 to start that process. $2,000 to start. And it's an amazing outdoor adventure game. Phoenix is going to be the backdrop. It's going to be the game board, all of Phoenix. So you can get kids off of devices. And that's the starting point, that's right? Starting you got point. you got to make it real here before you yes. can go. But this could be a national business. It could. We want to scale it up. You know, think of Amazing Race. That that show is so much fun. We want to get it international, internationally. Um, you know, and most importantly, getting your family out and involved. You know, get them outside of the house. Get away from the screens. Get away from the Wi-Fi. Go do something. It's beautiful here in Phoenix. We have year-round weather. So, um, yes, we, we also need to take that money and attack certain target groups like ASU students. Uh, so, yeah, we have a plan. Beautiful. We have an amazing plan. Beautiful. Final question. Yep. And you've listened to enough of these experiences to know what the final question is that I ask everyone, especially you, Alan, for the fact that you have faced death. And you told a story in the precast about chemo and the radiology machine that, that you stood up to, the, um, I believe you called it the- uh, Death Star. The Death Star, yeah. It you, does look quite like the Death Star. Um, You've faced death. Your life has dramatically improved and shifted because of that. You, you, you were, resurrected you you were given and seeing the light you woke up from the nightmare and you're like holy fuck yeah. i'm alive for the listeners out there for your family for everyone if today were your last day on earth what would you want your family your friends your community what would you want the people that you serve to know about you for the rest of their lifetime you being human Humanity, um, we have a great, a great blessing that we're cognizant, or we should be cognizant about the way we're treating each other, um, looking at people in the eye, loving longer, loving stronger, loving harder. Um, what I didn't mention is that my mother had passed from ALS uh, in 2017, and then my father took his life in 2018, shortly after my mom passed, 58 and 59, gone. What did they, what did they tell me before they passed? Both passed. My mom said, "Love stronger, harder, faster." She had actually had regrets as she's dying that she didn't do that. It is so easy to do. All you do is take time. Look at people in the eye; they're going through things too. 
they're going through the same life you are. It might be covered up with social media posts and making people think they're having a great life, but everybody is struggling with life. My main thing that I want to impress upon people is to take the time to enjoy the people that are around you. You can learn so much from them. Be human. We are human beings. We're not animals. And I think that most importantly, through the love of my wife, my unwavering wife, who should have left me, quite honestly, many times through my 20s, um, it's all around me. And I wasn't waking up to grab that message. That message is now with me every day. Every day I wake up and say, thank you for letting me breathe. So that is what I want to impart. If I were to die tomorrow, have I loved longer? Have I loved stronger? Have I passed on that message to other people? Because I got it from my dying mom's mouth herself. I mean, that is a terrible regret. It has to be a terrible regret to be going out and you haven't loved longer or stronger or harder or you just have regrets. I don't want that. I don't want that for anybody in this world. I, I feel every human life is so valuable. My friends, no regrets, no shame, no guilt. If you are not truly living the life that you know you can, if you're not waking up on fire and winning the day every day, knowing that challenges you will face and obstacles you will need to overcome, your life is not where you want it to be. This is one of the sole intentions of this podcast, along with the high-performance coaching that, that I do and the work that I work on with men. I'm a real dude. My okay. man Alan here knows it. Alan is a real man. Reach out to me. Send me a message, luke at lukeheim.com. Check out the website, lukeheim.com, and ask the questions uh, of what is needed for you to overcome any setbacks. We've heard for the truly... Probably one of all the episodes we've had, man, this this has been one that has given me goosebumps throughout the show, just listening to your testimony. So from the bottom of my heart and the depth of my soul, my brother, Alan, I, I truly appreciate you for being here and, and sharing this message and, and letting us know what your path has been like to get to this point where now you can help inspire other people mm -hmm. and hearing your message and, and hearing your story it's inspired me. So. I appreciate that. One more thing, if people want to get a hold of me or reach out, they can reach me on Instagram, kicking chemo AM, Alan Munnerlin. Kicking chemo Alan Munnerlin. If you see me driving around in an Arcadia cleaner's van, say hello. It gets kind of lonely. You know it, my brother. Thank you for being here. My name is Luke Kayam, and this is the Fathers of the Future podcast. <laughs>